0: The world of journalism had long been in turmoil. From the average eye, it is seen as a land of clickbait articles, of shadowy influencers, of people who don't report the correct news, or don't do it in the correct way. But there is never any talk of what goes on inside the newsroom. Stories of those journalists braving the most chaotic era of reporting and human history at large. My name is Wasi Anjil, and together with my co-host, Will Patterson, I'm going to help tell the stories of those journalists entering this new world. At a time when the COVID-19 crisis is still raging on, we're going to look at how these individuals are adapting to a rapidly evolving reporting environment and the human cost of doing so. This is Voices of Journalism. On this episode, I sat down with Eduardo Baptista, a half-Korean, half-Portuguese journalist working in Hong Kong. He's been in the industry a few years, freelancing in China and interning at a few organizations, such as CNN and the Nikkei Asian Review. A Yenching scholar from Peking University and a postgraduate in journalism from the University of Hong Kong, class of 2020, he now works at the South China Morning Post, SCMP for short. With the past year in Hong Kong having seen numerous disruptions in activity due to protests and now the coronavirus, I sat down with Eddie to learn how he's responding to the newer challenges to journalists while still dealing with the old demands of a fast-paced profession.
1: Really figure out, okay, how am I going to dig my feet into this community in order to ensure that my reporting isn't just the same old email, call, email, call, right? Virtual reporting. Only by impressing people will you be able to circumvent a lot of the routine HR processes that usually end up with your CV being thrown into the rubbish bin because you're just one in a thousand.
0: It has been what, maybe two, two and a half months since we last spoke in person, at least.
1: Have you been? What you been up to? Yeah, man. Uh, thank you for inviting me, first of all. Uh, I've been up to basically the art of working from home for weeks and weeks on end, so that's been fun because COVID-19 has forced us at SCMP to work from home. There was a scoop about it from, in Hong Kong local media, which was quite funny. You <laughs> know, it was, the headline was, "Breaking: SCMP, you know, has to work from home." Oh, well, if that's the way that stories are, are <laughs> circulated in this environment, but yeah, I've just been pumping out articles, working at a much faster rate than my years of freelancing, which I was doing all the way up until June. And so that's what I've been doing, basically getting accustomed to the rhythms of a full-time journalist.
0: Listeners, you can't really see this, but this is also the first time I'm seeing Eddie in quite a while. And he looks visibly just distraught. Like He is a guy who has very much been working from whom you could tell from his face. But yeah, I wanted to I suppose get the first day here about how different your reporting career was before COVID and
1: what it is now. Well, I guess before COVID, there was more on-the-ground reporting where I would actually take my ass to places and interview people door knock, more movement, but with all honesty, the first 5 months of 2020 were actually quite good for Hong Kong because there wasn't, I think, a massive spike, at least. And even when there was, people were still actually moving around. I don't ever recall people being in lockdown mode. And so I actually did do some on the ground interviews as well, as in going to places, meeting up with people. And and so I guess the only thing that changed is the job scenario because in the beginning uh, I was meant to start working part-time at SEMP probably around January uh, and then do that for like six months half a year basically before switching to full-time once I get my graduation certificate but what happened was because of COVID-19 things got delayed a lot it's just natural because the company was so busy with other more important tasks related to the disruption caused by COVID-19. And so I kind of had to spend six months readjusting. I actually am a bit hard on myself for having allowed uh, my work schedule to kind of really dip in the first two or three months of 2020, rather than readjusting straight away and going back into freelancing mode. Because in the first semester, so September to December, not only was I freelancing, I was also interning at Nikkei, but then the internship at Nikkei ended and I didn't try to extend it because I thought, you know, I'm going to my next gig at ACMP, but then that couldn't materialize when I wanted it to. And so I feel like I should have definitely been more proactive in the first three months and perhaps dealt with the unexpected a bit better.
0: This idea of having to adapt, I think, is already something that's very endemic to journalism mm-hmm. as a profession. But it's interesting to hear that you had that adaptive mindset, but now COVID threw it off. How are you,
1: I, I should say, maybe readapting to it now? I'm going to be honest with you. I think that... In terms of discipline, I have a lot to improve. I have a lot of flaws when it comes to the way I work. But one thing that's helped is when your editor messages you on Slack and says, can you get this by 6 p.m.? And then all kinds of plans go out the window all kinds of schedules all kinds of notion of having a bit of everything in your day you know the idea of a very varied day that, that all goes to pots and basically what you're doing is figuring out okay how can i get from a to b the fastest possible meaning usually how can i put together an article as fast as possible and then you start thinking what are my contacts i mean i kind of really try to develop new contacts as much as possible. But there are days when, you know, your editor says, we need this. And then you really have to go back to people that you've talked to already. And that's something that I'm instinctively uncomfortable with because I always like to expand my network. And I see every article as an opportunity to talk to more people. For example, I talked today to a professor at Peking University about uh, Latin America and China. I did the same thing this morning with somebody in Peru. I did the same thing yesterday with somebody in Argentina. And so that was really fulfilling. And I feel much better today because of what I did in the past 48 hours. But I guess 72 hours before I was actually in a rush to publish an article about how China's top diplomat, Yang Jiechi, arrived to Busan in South Korea to have this meeting. And so as you can see, that's like diplomatic breaking news very fast. They want you to interview some experts and to basically summarize like what what is happening as well mm-hmm. and that is something that i think is very necessary in journalism but that's the kind of thing that keeps me discipline necessity so where
0: exactly do your major responsibilities lie because uh, if my understanding is correct the idea of breaking news and covering breaking news is quite different from having to write those same articles around the subject matter where exactly does scmp fit you uh, or is it like a more little bit of everything or a little bit of whatever is needed in
1: the moment We definitely have specialist reporters at SCMP, but I'm very grateful that I'm actually covering a bit of everything and I'm not assigned to diplomacy, to military, to economy. Of course, at the same time, that means that if I'm not proactive, then I might fall into a trap of kind of going for the same range of stories. Format A, you go on Weibo, China's social media platform, and you look at viral news, see if there's anything interesting and then write that up, right? That's one easy way of getting breaking news stories. Another way is what are Chinese diplomats, leaders doing, right? Follow their footsteps, follow their calendar, and then write something about where they're moving, what they're talking about. But again, these two formats, I feel, though necessary, it's not the most creative. And so I think that I feel very privileged that I'm not still being shoe-holed into a beat but that also means that if I do want to write something about for example economy that it, it's not really my forte then I have to be proactive and I have to reach out to people who know about this mostly editors and be like look I have the story and I have to first think of a really good pitch because they're going to be like you're not really. this isn't really your thing like we don't really know you as the guy that reports about economy right so you kind of it, it's both a blessing and a curse mm-hmm. so is there a
0: fear of a day that you're not going to really have something to turn in, and or what are the consequences of such a day, especially now when you're working from home and you know things aren't as within the flow as they once were.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there are no consequences because there we don't have a daily quota. Mm-hmm. We don't. They don't force us to pump out an article a day, or they don't even have this idea of at least minimum one article a week so there really is no pressure it's more about what do you want to write about what do you feel is important so i feel that being the only i think the korean reporter in in the china desk then if there's something that is related to south korea which i'm naturally interested in but i also feel that i have the duty to you know try and write the best article that i can about that right And, and in some ways have that as like a mini beat just like a topic that I like to go back to when necessary and, and write about.
0: Working from home, spacing out, how do you keep your focus? How do you see articles through? Are you motivated enough to meet your own personal quotas? Do you have personal quotas?
1: Yeah, Yeah. Okay. I have personal quotas. All right, so how
0: do you meet them? What are those quotas, how do you meet them?
1: Well, I have this probably quite unrealistic system where, so in the beginning, so I've joined SCMP for now, almost three months so you can do two articles a week minimum and that can be three one week one the next but cumulatively your average is to be two a week and then as i do more underground reporting as i get more energized as i stop working from home and start sort of suiting up and meeting people and and sort of being my more you know bubbly vociferous self which i can really stage personality yeah i mean you know as a debater (laughs) Uh, as a uh, debating coach you know how to do that And, Uh, and i think that's something we definitely share and so once i'm able to do that and really also try to find some good stories in Hong Kong I think I'll be able to push it to three articles a week and obviously they have to be very varied because I don't want to just be a a, the nerd that covers China South Korea Firstly, because there's no demand for you to write three articles about China South Korea relations in a week but also because like I told you I really like variety I like not being uh forced into a beat and I like feeling that I have some expertise in most areas of coverage I would rather choose breadth over depth
0: So where do you think you would go from here then? If you're not interested in being shoehorned into a beat, Like, what does the progression look like now?
1: Well, I'm very much a plan-oriented person. So starting September, I'm going to probably spend six months either reading up a lot on finance, stocks, really technical stuff to do with financial journalism that in some ways, we covered in the second semester. I, I think I
0: have to mention that Will and I perhaps mistakenly took too many shots at Michael Bloomberg on our first episode. So, Mike, if you're listening, don't hold that against Eddie.
1: Go on. Looking into perhaps what <laughs> Bloomberg has written over the past few years, looking at their best investigations into the financial world, because Bloomberg is also known for producing very good, you know, like Reuters, like S. E. M. P. as well to some extent, you know, investigations into the financial dealings of powerful, rich people. And this is a world that I'm fascinated by. One book that I can recommend is by Tom Wright, A Billion Dollar Whale, that looks into the world of J. Lo, And it really is fascinating because once you focus on J.Lo, then you actually end up touching on Bannon and obviously Guo and gui who's the big conspiracy theorist that's very anti-CCP. And so my point being is that I want to focus a lot on finance in the next half year, because then I know that it's gonna stay with me for life. You know, I mean, when you tell yourself, I have six months to just give it my all and just even if in the end I just write one article, but at least, you know, I published something that shows that I understand how to write Mm -hmm. about money. And after that, it goes to politics. And after that, it goes to law. So you see how I understand that I can't cover 15 or I can't study 15 subjects in in the six month period, but I can study one subject at a six month period at a time.
0: Thanks for listening in so far. If you're enjoying what we're doing, please consider liking or reviewing the podcast wherever you get it. And you can also follow us on Twitter, and we also have a page on Facebook. For now, let's get back to the discussion. Well, speaking of finances, the business side of media has long been broken, and COVID-19 has especially widened that gap. Uh, Advertising revenue is down across the board, etc., etc., Has there been any personal blowback to you as a result of that or your organization? What has that aspect been like?
1: Well, uh, I think that there's less money to send people on trips right now, Mm -hmm. Um, although-
0: It's not like you can really go anywhere.
1: Exactly, but for me personally, financial blowback, I, I have to say that I'm very privileged. I've always had my parents' financial support And I say this very upfront because I don't want people to, I guess, see all my freelance writing and see what I've done since I was in Beijing in 2017 all all up until now. I don't want them to think that that's purely the result of hard work. It's not. The idea of a pure meritocracy is a lie. I mean, what happened was I had financial help. And so I can't be hypocritical and and tell you that COVID-19 has really affected me financially I mean in terms of the business of the media this is just a, a general point right layoffs are happening cuts are happening scMP announced publicly on its website around may or something that it was doing whatever a ten percent salary cut for top executives it's no secret that mm-hmm. every company is having to make adjust adjustments and, and and is going through struggles but I'd be lying to you if I said that that is affecting me because I've always been very privileged and fortunate to be able to count on my parents
0: is it something you've seen around you happen has there been any like people you know or just general things that you've seen affect people in that has, has that impacted the organization and the the work that you've done
1: no not really because as a person i'm i'm quite simple i guess in, in that if i needed to always hang out with my colleagues who I absolutely love by the way because they've been very welcoming but not in the sort of interfering sense right where they're always like coddling me and inviting me out for dinner every other day I would find that a bit uncomfortable but they've really kept a good modicum of sort of Okay, we'll take you out for lunch once and then that's kind of the introduction and whoever comes comes (laughs) and after that, you know, you're on your own and I like that because I'm more of like a solitary wolf kind of person. And so, of course, I have some colleagues that I just spend more time with and so I would like to see more of, you know, people like my supervising editor who works with me every week, we actually have a call every week and I would wish. Uh, and during some days that we could actually just meet up face-to-face and talk about stories. And I've actually told him, you know, I want to go to Lama Island where you live <laughs> and just have a hike, you know, Jesus. bring the human element back to it. But again, it's only a handful. And if I don't have that, again, being really honest, it, it, it doesn't affect me. So working from home, I've gotten used to it actually to the point where I'm actually afraid that I'm telling myself there's a pandemic out there. And so I'm not going out and doing the reporting that I should be doing. You know, and Mm -hmm. and so I I think what's what I need to ensure is that I don't let my own nature get in the way of me exploring everything that I can explore within SEMP as well as everything that Hong Kong has to offer.
0: You spend a lot of time generally covering the China beat in the past and the relationship with the actors in the region. With the pandemic in place, did you have plans before this to ever go outside of Hong Kong? Is this the place where you make your final
1: journalistic stand? Well, another one of my plans is to report from different countries. Again, it's hard to give yourself a timeline, but you can have a sort of a vague imagination framework. Yeah. Yeah, vague imagination. That's all all you can really (laughs) afford to do, especially Especially these days. Precisely. I think at some point in my life, I'd want to report for my mother's country, South Korea. It's technically my country, but I I don't actually have to do military service as a dual national um, Mm. and sort of mixed race Korean. And so uh, it's still in some ways foreign to me, but not at the same time. And so that's one of my goals. But I definitely would like to, at some point, report from mainland China. It doesn't have to be in the immediate future, but it's a fascinating country, just, you know, the People's Republic. And so if I can go back there too, that would be great. So if I had to kind of tell you my sort of entire vague, imaginatory, you know, life career plan, of course, I eventually I would also like to go to Brazil because I'm Portuguese, but Brazil is a huge country and being able to report that would also be great. But again, these are all goals that are, that have to be by definition undefined because you know, you never know when you can actually chase them. But yeah, I'd like to report from different countries.
0: All right. So let's take a step back. How did you get into journalism? What was the thing that drove you to it? And has it really panned out the way you thought it might
1: have? I think it happened because of a multitude of reasons, as most things do. But if I had to sort of list out the three sort of key triggers that really got me hooked on this path at least and a path that I don't really see myself veering away from anytime soon so something that really kept me going and you know without an end in sight firstly it was my trip to Bolivia when I was a second year Or I just finished my second year at Cambridge, in my undergrad. I was doing an internship at Bolivian Express, which is Bolivia's only English language magazine. And so that was my first experience with media. Before that, all I'd been doing was basically reading a bunch of really complicated books and writing essays about them. As a standard Cambridge stick. Exactly. But that experience was really it really planted the seed of journalism because I travel around the country by myself and Bolivia is a beautiful, very diverse country, rainforests at ground level, high snowy peaks at 4000 meters above altitude, which is where La Paz, the capital is. And so I was based in La Paz, but I got to travel around Bolivia and I got to interview basketball players. I got to interview Korean volunteers. I got to experience a blockade where miners blow up the sides of mountains and they force thousands of buses filled with people to walk for miles and miles on end during, you know, dusk just so you can get to a really shitty village where then they can take you on on like a Volkswagen filled with 15 people to a civilized you know city where Jeez. i'm just imagining the imagery now of a volkswagen
0: with 15 people like and, and this is like a problem i've had it's like all the videos that i've watched like crowd performances live concerts etc just watching them is now physically you know it makes me ill because i'm like oh dude like COVID has not helped the concept of a group gathering in my head anymore so yeah i'm I'm imagining the volkswagen for 15 people and i'm thinking
1: this is a terrible health hazard i don't think i'll ever be able to do this for myself anymore uh, uh-huh. at the time i was comfortable mm. and i had a great time talking to bolivians of all walks of life and so once i got back to cambridge i sort of had this you know seed which didn't actually blossom straight away into a desire to switch paths and go into journalism because actually so i want to become an academic perhaps you've been through similar sort of, you know, decisions. But once I got to Cambridge, I kind of realized, wow, I'm really not suited to Western academia. It's it's not because there's anything necessarily wrong with Western academia, it's more so, my personality doesn't really fit with it. And so that got me thinking, yeah, I've kind of always, in some ways, been an outsider to this elitist English institution. So where could I feel comfortable? And I think China sort of came up. And then once I realized that, wow, I'm really stressed this is the final trigger right Whilst I'm really stressed with exams and trying to get like a really good grade then I realized wow like all of this is in some ways meaningless so I kind of had the existential crisis at 21 and I was like okay where can I find meaning and I think I found that meaning by writing stuff that I was proud of rather than stuff that you kind of do just to get a grade and so I think those three triggers combined meant that by the time I was leaving Cambridge in June 2017 and getting ready to move to Peking University. I already kind of had this obsession with journalism, so it was kind of the first sort of subconscious trigger with Bolivia, which kind of planted a seed, and then just one after the other. Shout out to Bolivia, Bolivia, the engineer country. of future journalists. Yeah. I'd love to report there again. So, yeah, it would yeah. be, be a dream come true. Hmm.
0: Talking about dreams and you know going back to where we would want to report, how do you see the pandemic? shaping the way you report in the future now. The idea of something now being able to stop global movement at this level is probably going to be something that becomes a more common occurrence as time goes on. Have you had any thoughts on how you adapt to that changing environment and what that does for your future aspirations to maybe travel to other places, report there, etc.?
1: It shows the importance of being based in a place, right? Because if I'm based In Beijing, for example, then that means I can actually travel to most provinces in China. If I'm based in Hong Kong, I can go all the way up to the border with Shenzhen. And I can go all the way down to the beaches right on the southern part of the islands without being stopped by anyone. right? And so once you have a pandemic that really prohibits you from going on cross-country, transnational business trips, which I think is something that a lot of big international outlets try to do, Right. You know, they try to get either senior editors from their headquarters to some place in Asia, or they try to get a reporter who has a good story idea to go to the country or the, you know, remote place that they need to go to. But I think with the pandemic, what that has made me realize is that, wow, I've only got Hong Kong to work with right now. And so sure, I can tell you, I want to work in South Korea. I want to work in mainland China. But when you're in the pandemic and you realize, oh, yeah, you know, getting moved around isn't as easy now as it was in the past, well, then you kind of have to appreciate your local environment more and really figure out, okay, how am I going to dig my feet into this community in order to ensure that my reporting isn't just the same old email, call, email, call, right? Virtual reporting, because you can do a lot. I've actually gotten a really good color for an online gambling story that i can't really share too many more details about no but i I wanted to say that I, i got a lot of color for that story and none of what i did was face to face right so it's by no means an excuse to not do great reporting. But you also know from having done, you know, your own reporting projects that it really helps when you can actually meet somebody face to face for a coffee and just become friends with them. Or you can go and get that color by being at the right place at the right time, a protest, I don't know, a music event, a comedy session. Some stories don't require color, but it's more like if you're somebody that sees journalism as more than just you know, a job that you do to get money in return. But if you see it more as an excuse to go out and chase as many stories as you can, turn some of those into books, into really long features, right? And, and really kind of see everything as a craft, then you you really cannot discount feet reporting, right? Taking, mm-hmm. you know, your body to a different physical I mean, place. While,
0: while we're on the subject, sourcing. I remember you telling me that you're a stickler for sources. You, it's, it's something that you're very peculiar about. What is the opportunity cost that has been introduced as a result of not having that source face-to-face,
1: not having that interaction anymore? In terms of cost, it really means that you're probably less likely to get scoops, like really break important news, because you might be able to message somebody through the internet, you know, through any means of communication and get them to talk about their story and maybe that story is sensitive and so they'll have to speak about it anonymously but actually getting a scoop right you know that means you know somebody being like this is happening right now and I want to tell it to you these things aren't usually done quite well over <laughs> social media mm-hmm. I mean they can be but I've worked with a lot of very experienced very competent financial journalists and they meet up with bankers in person for a reason right because that's how you actually get the freshest news of what's going on and so I think the the cost is that perhaps it's harder to to get scoops but again if you're the kind of person that has already put in years of work of meeting up with people of supplying them with relevant information of not just treating them as th- tools that you use to get quotes of actually building relationships and having your network then maybe right now you have no no cost because they've Got into the point where you can just call them and be like yo what's up and that's the kind of boss level that i want to get to because that's really a boss level you know what i mean and i see so many good reporters at scmp that can do that and i and like really it, i respect it so much man and, and and i really wish these people got more credit i mean i think they get a lot of credit because we're very well respected by china watching experts but really it, it's impressive to actually see that you know once you're in that working environment mm-hmm. like these people they just they just have so many contacts, <laughs> you know, and, and again, years of work.
0: So there, there's a certain feel that comes to having worked at a big news organization and worked with smaller ones as well. What are the pros and cons of either? Which one do you think favors your skill set more?
1: So between CNN and SEMP? Sure. Well, I think that with SCMP you're able to write many more stories because when I was at CNN, I had to struggle to get my pitches approved because unfortunately I'd come from a background of niche reporting. So before CNN, I was at a small English language magazine called The World of Chinese. It's a great publication, but again, it's very niche. Like you, you write on basically the most quirky, bizarre funny subjects that you can find that are related to China. And so going from that to CNN, where you really have to find stories that are understandable to an American audience, that was hard. And I think it was a good experience because it really made me work for that publication, right? In the sense that with World of Chinese, I could you know, crank out one or two articles every week. And it was easy, right? It was easy to find an idea somewhere in the Chinese internet or somewhere in my contact book and just pitch it, right? It could it could even just be Q&A with an interesting person, right? That's how easy it was. And it makes sense because, you know, they're they're trying to just bring out as many voices as possible. But CNN isn't trying to bring as many voices as possible regarding China. I mean, they want to inform their public about China, which means you have to be selective. So if I had like scoops about the trade war, about Huawei, about, you know, pollution, then yeah, I'm sure they would publish it. But I, I didn't, I haven't got to that level. I, I was at the rapper Magician. You know, ancient Chinese beatboxer. That that those were the context I had, and so I had to make do with that and try and find themes that could allow me to use this base that I already built, and write an article that was suited to an American audience. Whilst I think with SCMP, it's 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 freer because um, not only can I write about China, South Korea, which I think for CNN is already a bit too specialized. You know, like just the fact that Yang Jiechi goes to Busan. As as a
0: newsworthy for an international global audience oriented. Yeah.
1: And because SEMP caters to a lot of China watchers, I I feel like there's also more things that that I can write. And so I think it it, it was good to have that experience as an intern in CNN, but A, I much prefer not to be an intern, right? Who wouldn't? (laughs) And D, I think that I have more leeway to write more at SEMP and just get a, a lot of bylines in, like I said, as many different subjects as possible. That is the institution that can really, as a young reporter, allow you to try out so many things. Like, they don't ever say that, like, oh, Eddie, because, you know, you're not the gambling reporter. I wrote about gambling, like, a, a week ago. They, they don't say that, like, oh, we're going to sh- take this idea and give it to our person who's who usually covers gambling. No, they're like, if you get the idea and you have contacts, right, and you have an idea of how you're going to execute, then do it. And and I think that's something that perhaps may be particular to um semp for if you are an early sort of career reporter right and you go there and you just have like this wide ass brief you know to just go haywire
0: feel like there's a very strong track record of internships just flooding the market and i say flooding the market the demand is way more than the supply i would reckon Mm -hmm. but those are the types of jobs that are most apparent at any organization What is the pathway actually look like in terms of upward progression how does one move from the internship to hopefully a permanent more permanent role there
1: i think you need to impress people because only by impressing people will you be able to circumvent a lot of the routine hr processes that usually end up with your cv being thrown into the rubbish bin because you're just one in a thousand Of course, there was this Atlantic reporter who, you know, she's now published a book and stuff. And she was saying that for her career path, she actually just applied online and it worked. So I would definitely advise that anyone who is in that internship stage to keep applying. For me, I was lucky in that I impressed first some people at CNN, which then allowed me to get looks from other big outlets, but then they didn't follow through, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with where, you know, you kind of get, interest but then in the end nothing ever materializes but then by continually doing that and you can only really do that by by just putting yourself out there so whether it's you produce a really good podcast whether it's you you freelance whether you intern there has to be a deliverable that has the potential to impress somebody if it's you know your video uh you know person then you know maybe by being a really good vj at AFP, at some other international organization, they might keep you on for freelance. And then if you're lucky, you might be able to get the full-time job. And so I think the the way to get from internships to full-time jobs is by ensuring that the internship that you're in gets you those deliverables. Because if it's an internship where perhaps all you're doing is routine sort of admin work, perhaps some research, but you're not actually producing anything that you can put your name on in this industry, that's not really going to be as helpful as if for example you were a freelancer and you're just cranking out article after article. And again, the reason why I bring up financial privilege is because if I didn't get those internships, I would be have like that financial support to do freelancing. And again, for any listeners that are curious, a lot of freelancers in Hong Kong won't say this, but they do have financial support, right? And so let's not be sort of all meritocratic about this. I mean, if you're somebody who cannot afford to do an internship, right, then perhaps the best thing that you can do is to get a job that's kind of related and then you have a side gig but whatever it is if you want to get from graduate in media studies or in journalism to a full-time journalism job you have to produce something like content has to go out there and you have to market it you know you have to send it to people otherwise I mean, your CV doesn't really count for anything. It can have you could literally have all the names there, but what if all you did there was coffee or put together schedules or or like you have to show something. Right? And so I uh, I think it's it's very simple, and that's why I think I have faith that a lot of our classmates, that perhaps you know, even if they might feel a bit dejected because they didn't get a job straight away, like I know that if they keep interning, if they keep pushing, if they keep taking initiative, if they keep pitching. I just if they keep meeting up with people right then yeah like naturally you're going to get something it's it's inevitable
0: you've been listening to voices of journalism a show part of the incoherent political spaghetti podcast i've been your host wasi Anjum, and on this episode we talk to eduardo baptista a half korean half portuguese journalist working in hong kong Please like and review the podcast wherever you can and help support us grow. Over time, we're going to bring you more stories from other journalists also braving these harsh reporting environments. Till then, see you next time.